Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Yerdana Osban, here with my friend, Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachi Kedushin, daf Lamed Vav, page 36. Well, I couldn't figure out exactly where to start here because I really wanted to get to the piece of the Gemara that is before the Mishnah. And just to sort of set up what the Gemara is doing here, we had this opinion of somebody named E.C. who talked about what the basis is uh, for the exemption uh, that women are not included in the prohibition against making a bald spot. And Rav and Abaye have differing opinions about how to understand Isi's opinion. And so the Gemara wants to explain why does Rav not hold like Abaye and why does, uh, and why does Abaye not hold like Rav? But Rav, my time, why does Rav not explain Isi's source as Abaye did? So the difference between Karach and, kar- and Karcha it wasn't meaningful to him. Again, reference back to the Gemara to understand that. Um, and why does Abai not explain his source the way Rabba did? He would answer the, that the Gezer Shava that they talked about is necessary so that the law talking about Tefillin themselves can be explained from here, from the prohibition about making a bald spot. Just as there and to regard making a bald spot is talking about the the part on the upper head where the hair grows. So too in the case of Tefillin, it's talking about the place of the upper part where the hair grows. Um, so again, this has to do with this understanding of the Gezer Shava. Okay, but what the Gemara really wants to know is, and this is the part I want to get to, Uben Labai, Uben Laraba, hi, Okay, but according to both Abai and Rabbah, right, how do they understand, right, there's this pasuk that says, um, right, you are the sons to Hashem, which the Gemara basically explained was meant to show that that Isi's law, that women are exempt from the prohibition against making a bald spot. But since Abai and Rabbah give different ways to understand how we get to that exemption, what do they do with this pasuk of um, banim atem that Isi used to explain that women and men are exempt from this, uh, that women are exempt from this prohibition against making a bald spot. So this is the part I'm actually interested in. That was a lot of introduction there. Okay. So the Gemara goes on and says, right? You need this pasuk because of what was taught in the following brisa. Banim atem lashem elokechem, right? So quoting this pasuk that says that you are children to Hashem, your God. Now remember, Banim, the way Isi understood it, meant it literally as sons, but sometimes Banim can actually mean children. When you act in the matter of children, you are called children, right? Right? When you are not called, when you are not, you are not called children of Hashem when you don't act like children. Um, Rabbi Yehuda. These are the words of Rabbi Yehuda, right? So this is the idea of Banim Atem Lashem meaning we're only deserving of being like Banim uh, when we, uh, you know, when when we behave in a way that we are like children. Now, Anne, I actually feel like there is a little nice nistar here because you and I are. This is going to be the dot for the day after Rosh Hashanah, right? Where we spend a lot of time. I'm, I'm thinking about the part, you know, the davening Rosh Hashanah. Im kevanim, im ka'avadim, right? That there are two different relationships that we could have with God, either the one like children 
or the one like a servant. So here we're talking more about this relationship that we can have with God of one like a child. But Rabbi Meir has a different opinion here. Rabbi Meir Omer, right? Either way, you're always going to be the children of Hashem. Right? And so here he quotes a pasuk from Yirmiyahu, chapter 4, verse 22, uh, which says that they're foolish children, meaning even if they sin, they're still considered to be called children. Right? And then later on in Devar, it well, earlier in Devarim, chapter 32, verse 20, it says, uh, children uh, in whom there are no loyalty. It also says in Yeshayahu chapter 1, verse 4, uh, a seed of evildoers, children that act corruptly. And then they quote another pasuk from Hosea chapter 2, verse 1, that says, Instead of that which was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be are the sons of my living God. In other words, Rabbi Meir basically brings four psukim where the term banim or zera is used, right? Meaning children, but in the context of being children who sinned. So Rabbi Meir is saying, I disagree with you, Rabbi Yehuda. We are still considered banim, even if we sin. And then the Gemara goes on to explain Rabbi Meir's points a little bit more and says, my Omer. why does Rabbi Meir keep saying Omer? Why does he need four psukim to prove this? Normally we bring one pasuk and that's enough. So why does he need to bring all these other psukim, right? The first pasuk that he brought from Yirmiyahu should have just been enough. Because you could say that when you say they act foolishly, they're called children. But, but when they don't have loyalty, maybe that's when they're not called children. So that's why we need that second pasuk from Devarim that talks about loyalty. And if you say that only it's when they don't have loyalty that they're called, uh, no loyalty that they're still called children. But when they worship idols, they're still not called children. So that's where you need the pasuk that comes from Yishayahu that says they're a seed of evil doers, children that act corruptly. And if you will say that they're only called children when they're corrupt, but you but they will not ever be called full fledged full fledged children again. Like they'll be called banim, but they're not full children. And that's why we need this final pasuk in Hosea, which basically says that even when they want to say, you aren't my people, we're still going to say to them, no, you are still always, uh, you're still always Hashem's children. So I just thought that, you know, I, I, I like this passage because again, we're, we, this is going to be the doc that we read during Aserah during the 10 days of repentance. And I think it's a beautiful reminder that no matter what is going on in our life, right, no matter how far we as individuals may feel from God or may feel that our nation is from God, Rabbi Mayer comes and basically says, we're always considered banim. It doesn't make a difference. We're always going to be considered children. I feel like everything I'm going to follow with now is like a letdown because it's just such a beautiful director and so timely. But we have a new Mishnah, so I'm... Yeah, get we'll, to the Mishnah. We'll this is like a nice little break from the beards, the balding, all this kind yeah. of stuff. 
I, no, I, 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 then, I drew the better you know. straw today. That's what I'll say. <laughs> so we have a new Mishnah: Asmichot v'atnufot v'hagashot v'kemitzot v'aktarot v'amlik hamlikot v'hekbalot v'hazayot. So some of these terms will be familiar to people. They're all um, activities that take place in the Beit Hamikdash and the Temple, and they're connected to various kinds of offerings. So smichut—that's the placing of hands on the head of an offering. And tnuvot, that's waving, which happens with certain, particularly green offerings, but not only. Um, hagashot, the bringing near of the meal offerings to the corner of the altar. And then hakmitot, removing a handful of the meal. Um, hakterot, smoking the, smoking the limbs. Sometimes it's also smoking incense. Vamlikot, this is where the pinching that happens with a bird offering. Hakbalot, collecting a blood. Hazayot, sprinkling about blood. So after all that, right, and we can now see how it connects to the previous Mishnayot, so that all of those practices in the Beit HaMikdash, the practice, the, the, the general approach was that the men would do this and not the women, except for when it came to the meal offering that was brought by a sota or for a nizira, a nazir woman, right? Because those are tenufot, those are waving um, carbonote that the women, I mean, that's the status of those particular women, and they would need to wave their their own carbonote. But for the most part, I would say that this is simply like a, a list of which practices you might have thought in the Beta Magdash would be also relevant for the women to do for themselves when they brought any of these carbonote. And the answer is basically no, that the Kohanim, certainly for the most part, in the Beta Magdash would take care of it. So the Gemara is going to go through, you know, a whole bunch of these. To say, you know, how do we know that each one of these things was done by a man and where do we get the source for it to begin with and so on. So I want to jump down, though, because I mean, I think that, that those kinds of derivations from the verses, we understand what's happening there. If we jump down towards, it's on Amad Bet, but not very far into Amad Bet, it says, right? meaning specifically, let's leave out these two leave offerings that the women themselves would need to bring themselves. Right, so Rabbi Lazar says to Rabbi Yoshe, now, this is an interesting thing. Dare means that he lived in his generation, meaning there's another Rabbi Yoshe who's a Tana. That's not this person. This person is the Amora who lives at the same time of Rabbi Lazar. It would seem that this conversation between these two is not a construct of the Gemara's death, but actually these two people like they lived in the same generation, they had this conversation. So what happens? He says, do not sit down until you've explained this to me. Namely, how do we know that the meal offering that the sota brings requires weaving to begin with? So the says, Bagufa. Is it Minalan? What do you mean Minalan? Bagufa Ktiv. How are you, what are you asking? Where is it from? The whole description of the, in the Torah of the Sota, that's what it says. Literally that you should wave the Korban Mincha that she has to bring. Meaning it's from the verse in, in the book of Numbers, chapter five. It's just part of the process of the Sota. So rather what you should ask is how do we know that the waving would be done by the owners? Maybe only the Kohanim would do the waving. Why should it be this woman in this case, Atya Yad Yad Mish, Mishlamim. So Rabbi Yosha explains, 
He says, we, we derive this from the fact that Yad, the word hand, is present in the discussion of the Sota and also present in the Korban Shlamim, the peace offering. In the context of the Sota offering, it says, the Kohen took the offering Miyad from the hand of the woman. And there also it says his hands will bring the offerings, meaning, so once you've got a hand there and a hand here, you can see that it has to be the same way that that's the, the second place is brought by the owners. So to here, it has to be hers brought by the owners. And then the Gemara goes on, Makan Kohen, Aflahalan Kohen. You could say, well, just as with regard to the Sota, the Kohen does the waving. So maybe you can say that with the Shlomim also, you would have a Kohen doing the waving. Malahalan, but Balim, Afkan Balim, Haketa. So again, you say the owner does the, but there we have the owner doing the waving. Here we have the owner doing the waving. So it seems like we, as much as they've brought this to say, here's the solution, we still have this open question. So the Gemara answers, Kohen machnis yado tachat yad ba'alim omenif. So what they would do is, that, because we've learned it now in both directions, that both the Kohenim should be doing it and also the owners of the, the bringers of the carbon should be doing it. So the answer is the Kohen would put his hand under the animal, under... Um, the the owners would put their hands on the animal, and the kohanim would put their hands under those of the owners. And then the gemara says, "Ashkechan sota." All right, fine. Like you solved the question with regard to the sota woman and her waving of the meal offering. Nazir Aminal, and what about the female nazir? How does she? How do we know that she's going to wave her offering? Atya kaf kaf misota. And so there we've got another you know word um, connection juxtaposition where we have the word. Kaf, meaning palm, I guess, right? the palm of your hand, and it's there in the context of the description of the Nazir, and it's there in the context of the description of the Sota. So we learn the Nazira from the case of the Sota. And so now we've got, again, all those practices in the Beit HaMikdash that were really done by men, except for these two, and these two are explicitly learned out from biblical text, meaning it's from the Torah, and that's why they can't kind of they can't let it go. They can't say, no, the men will take care of that also. Just let the Kohen deal with it. No, because they, these are explicit or or not quite explicit, but juxtapositionally explicit in the biblical text. And so you can't get out of it. Um, I, You know, I think it's an interesting discussion that they have. This whole section is interesting because the kind of the premise of the idea that maybe the female Kohanim would be allowed to do some of these activities and they sort of have to prove otherwise is interesting to me because I just would have assumed the assumption is of course they weren't allowed to because we know everything is always addressed to B'nai Aram, but yet they still take the time to go through like why women can't actually do that. So that's the first piece I want to point out. The Sota discussion is interesting because also it's kind of the thing like, well, obviously the Sota would have to do it because it's the Sota's thing to do. And yet, we still have to prove it. Yeah, I found that piece interesting. And, and you know, and I think, again, I, what we're really seeing in sort of these past few dapim is the Gemara is not willing to sort of just take the Mishnah's statement that something is factual. It's really going to take the time to prove to us, you know, why did the Mishnah come to this conclusion, which I think also teaches us something interesting, that the Mishnah, in a way, is just a cliff note. It wasn't ever meant to be sort of the be-all and end-all of the discussion. It was meant to 
start discussion. And so the Gemara comes to fill that discussion in. Right, exactly. I, I mean, and it's helpful in that way also. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because if you don't know that, you, if you can't read the Mishnah and know any of that, unless you've actually been taught it. So the Gemara is coming to sort of like fill all those pieces in for you. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hydrant website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Time on Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.